Well, welcome back. Good morning. Good morning to those of you joining us online this morning. My name is Gary. I'm the lead pastor here at GBC. And uh, this week, I, uh, I think the last several weeks actually, I went and saw my chiropractor for a stiff neck. Um, now, I don't know if you've ever had that thing where you wake up and you just have this you know, tightness in your neck, and it kind of bothers you. Uh, I've struggled with it over my whole life, really, since I was a teenager. And a lot of times I could just uh, take some ibuprofen for a couple days, rest it, maybe ice, a little massage, and it'll kind of go away. But this went on for a couple months, and so it was one of those times that I needed to go see the chiropractor. And if you've ever been under chiropractic care, you know that there's this sort of, uh, there's this willing submission that kind of comes into the process, right? You go in, and, you know, you're laying on your back in the case of having your neck worked on, uh, looking up at this person, and they grab your head, right? You know where I'm going, and you've got to just kind of go. And then there's this like, this sort of semi-violent adjustment, if you will. In fact, this is the term that they use. But that adjustment allows the muscles to move uh, in the way that they need to move. And then often, certainly in, in modern times, there's, that's married with physical therapy and or infrared treatment or whatever your thing is, electric stim, you know, depending on where you are. And so that process of adjustment uh, sort of permits the muscles to be able to move the way that they need to move. And it begins the healing process in a way that's not, um, you know, medicinal in the sense of what ibuprofen brings to the table. And, you know, I think a lot of what we're looking at in Deuteronomy 9 this morning is sort of like a spiritual adjustment like that. It's this, uh, and I think you'll see in the text why I open with an illustration of, of uh, you know, chiropractic care and a stiff neck, but it's this spiritual adjustment that needs to happen. In fact, our big theme this morning is that God's law adjusts our will to submit to his grace. God's law adjusts our will to submit to his grace. And, you know, I just want to draw attention to this morning and take a moment to uh, appreciate the fact of what we are about to do as a people. Those of you at home, online, uh, the few, the proud, and the brave in the room who, uh, you know, braved the, uh, I don't know, quarter inch of snow or whatever it is. Um, now, granted, I know it's slippery. There was a bad accident on 95, so uh, my, our former senior pastor would have called those of you at home weather weenies. Okay, I'm not doing that. Um, but uh, nonetheless, we're gathered together both virtually and together, and we are about to expound on and exposit and exegete from the biblical text, which there's actually an anthropomorphism in the text this morning that, that the scripture comes from the very finger of God. That this book is uniquely the authoritative word of God to us. And we have the privilege, unfettered and unrestrained, to spend 30 minutes of our day digging deep to learn what God would have for us together as a community of his people. What a privilege. What an honor this morning. Uh, as we get into the text, and in a moment I'll pray, just a reminder of the setting. Moses and his people are on the plains of Moab, and they are about to enter the promised land. And Moses is preaching what is his second sermon here in the book of Deuteronomy to those people. And remember, it's the second generation of those who came out of Egypt. So the first generation, their parents' generation, they have literally died off in, in a punishment due to disobedience in the wilderness. And so now the second generation has a second opportunity to actually take possession of God's great gift of their inheritance of the promised land. And so Moses is preaching to them and exhorting them to obey where their parents had disobeyed. That's the context, that's the setting for where we are uh, this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Let's pray together as we approach God's word. Lord, just uh, reminded this week of the, the sweet privilege 
of what we get to do as a community. Lord, I thank you for the, for the honor of being able to preach your word, Lord, but for each one of us to sit under your teaching. Holy Spirit, that you would guide what you want us to hear, what you want us to take away. And most importantly, Lord, that as we receive your word this morning, whether we're at home or in the building today, that we would leave, that we would step away from this teaching changed. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, three big points to encapsulate this idea that God's law uh, adjusts our will to submit to his grace. Number one, we'll see early in the passage that there's a warning against self-righteousness. A warning against self-righteousness. And then there's the witness of remembering, and specifically of remembering our sin. Something that might sound counterintuitive, so we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time there. And finally, there's the working of a mediator. The great joy of this passage is the working of a meteor. So excited to kind of dive into this. So let's look at the warning of self-righteous, or against self-righteousness. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to read just the first six verses initially. He says this. He says, listen, Israel. Today you are about to cross the Jordan to enter in and drive out nations greater and stronger than you with large cities fortified to the heavens. The people are, people are strong and tall and the descendants of the Anakim. You know about them, and you have heard it said about them, who can stand up to the sons of Anak? But understand that today the Lord your God will cross over ahead of you as a consuming fire. He will devastate and subdue them before you. You will drive them out and destroy them swiftly, as the Lord has told you. When the Lord your God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. You are not going to take possession of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness in order to fulfill the promise he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness for you are a stiff-necked people. And there we get our opening illustration, right? Which we're going to come back to. But, you know, th the warning there is probably pretty clear. But God begins by telling his people exactly why he is going to take them in to, to take possession of the promised land. Namely, it's, number one, to fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is a God who does what he says he's going to do. He's a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God, and he has promised this to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore he's going to deliver on this promise. But there's also this notion that he makes clear twice in the passage that it's to judge the evil and the wickedness and the corrupt nature of the nations that are in there before them. That God is, as one commentator put it, he's going to use Israel as a broom to sweep away the wickedness of the people that are in the land. Now, over the course of time, there have been uh, accusations, uh, particularly about um, the God of the Old Testament, of being even genocidal and so on and so forth. But what's at stake in this text is, is not God's dislike or favor of one people over another, but his holiness and the gross disobedience of, of human beings. And, and Israel themselves are not exempt. I want to take us back to the chapter that Zach preached on last week, right before chapter 9, verse 1, and just read to you quickly where chapter 8 ended. God's talking to his people, and he says this, If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve them and bow and worship them, I testify against you today that you will perish. Like the nations the Lord is about to destroy before you, you will perish if you do not obey the Lord your God. So this is about God's holiness, and even his people Israel 
Should they become corrupted and defiled and vulgar and evil as the nations that are ahead of them, they too would be punished just the same. God does not play favorites. And so the issue at stake is his holiness. And so these are the reasons he's going to take them in. And, and now he warns them three times in verses 4, then 5, then 6, that it is not your righteousness that gives you this victory. The success that you will have in dispossessing these nations is not because you are so awesome, but because I am awesome, is what he's saying. By the word, the word awesome really only applies to God. It's a word we probably shouldn't use for anything else. But God is, he warns his people against self-righteousness. And you know, there's a, a really strong principle here uh, relative to those of you that are believers in Jesus today. If you are a Christian, if you're walking with Christ, when we have success in our Christian lives, even over a sinful habit or a relationship is restored or we have some sort of victory or fruitfulness in ministry, this warning applies to us. And it's a reminder not to become self-righteous. But we can also sort of reverse that. And as we face those challenges, as you face that sin that has always overcome you, that temptation you always give into, as you mourn and grieve and struggle with that relationship with that teenager or adult son or daughter that you are estranged from that's far from God, or as you wrestle with your marriage that is just strained and stressed and at the verge of breaking up, it is not your self-righteousness that can bring victory anyway. But what does God say about the challenges that the people face? He says that he will go before them, that he is a consuming fire. He will, he will subdue them. He will bring the victory. And what's fascinating about the very beginning of this passage, the first two verses, is that Moses recounts in almost exact verbatim to the earlier, to chapter 1 and to Numbers chapter 14, the challenges of entering the promised land. Listen to what he says. The nations are greater than strong and stronger than you, with cities fortified to the heavens, and the people are strong and tall, and the descendants of Anak. We spent a bunch of time on this a few weeks ago, back in the fall, actually. It was a little while ago now. But it's the same exact language. It's verbatim the same challenges. Even the hyperbole of their cities are fortified to the heavens. Moses repeats this language exactly. And here's the notion. It's the idea that the challenges have not changed. And God is being very clear. I understand the gravity, the severity, the immensity of the challenges. Your parents got it wrong because they resided or they trusted in their own self-righteousness, their own ability. They failed to trust that I will go before them. I will give them victory. I will subdue those nations. And so I belabor that point this morning to put that in the context of whatever the struggle you face in your Christian walk. Maybe it's a sin thing. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Uh, maybe it's a ministry you've been pouring into that has just not yielded fruit. By the way, as a church, as we exhibit uh, victory and success at any level, and we shared at the end of last year, we've, we've had an amazing year of giving growth. Dare that we not think that has anything to do with our righteousness or that our blessing comes at the hand of God because we have been so virtuous. It is simply that he has chosen to bless us. In fact, there's really two kinds of pride for the Christian in our walk with God as we face challenges and particularly as we experience victory. There's, on the one hand, there's sort of that more uh, a heinous sense of pride where we deny God's blessing and we attribute success and victory to ourselves. We say, look how great we are. Look what I have done. 
But there's a more subtle version of that that says, God, thank you for your blessing. And then there's this small voice that whispers, and I'll speak for me, having grown up in the church in Sunday school and Awana and youth group, that you start to get this in a New Testament sense, almost this pharisaical notion that I deserve this. I've been, I've been faithful. And this is a warning against that attitude. Uh, Brandon uh, said it uh, in his prayer, before his prayer, there's, it's a relationship of dependency, that we are not stiff-necked, but we're humble. And so that brings Moses to the place where he not only warns against self-righteousness, but then he gives this idea of the witness of our own sin, sort of speaking back to us, our own history. So this is the, the large section of the chapter we're going to read together. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to sort of read along and track with me here. We're going to read 7 through 17 and then 22 to 24. You can certainly watch on the screen as well. He begins, verse 7. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God in the wilderness. You have been rebelling against the Lord from the day that you left the land of Egypt until you reached this place. You provoked the Lord at Horeb and he was angry enough with you to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant the Lord made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I did not eat food or drink water. On the day of the assembly, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets inscribed by God's finger. The exact words were on them which the Lord spoke to you from the fire on the mountain. The Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant, at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord said to me, get up and go down immediately from here, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way that I commanded them and have made a cast image for themselves. The Lord also said to me, I have seen this people, and indeed they are a stiff-necked people. Leave me alone and I will destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and then I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I went back down the mountain while it was blazing with fire and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. I saw how you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made a calf image for yourselves. You had quickly turned away from the Lord and from the way the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them from my hands, shattering them before your eyes. I fell down in the presence of the Lord, verse, 20, uh, sorry, verse 22. You continued to provoke the Lord at Taborah, Masa, and Kibroth Hatava. When the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, he said, Get up, go take possession of the land I have given you. And you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not believe or obey him. You have been a rebelling against the Lord ever since I have known you. Big chunk of scripture, super uplifting, isn't it this morning? Hey, come to church this morning and we'll make a huge point of the fact that God wants us to remember our sin. Well, you know, that's it, it, the truth of the passage. And in fact, it's, uh, God wants his people to remember their sin with a, a great deal of specificity, actually. He spends a lot of time in the detail of what they did in rebellion. And understand that this was generationally their parents. But he begins with this idea, remember and never forget how you provoked the Lord to anger. You've been rebelling since you left Egypt. And then he ends with this sort of summary statement, you've been rebelling ever since I've known you. It's actually quite true if you read the book of Numbers. But you know, this book of Deuteronomy has a theme of remember. 
You might remember, two weeks ago during our snowed-in sermon, we talked about the fact that God wanted his people to remember that he was the one who had delivered them from Egypt and the great uh, power of Pharaoh, and also remember that he was the one, God himself, who was among them and would deliver them as they went into the promised land. Last week, Pastor Zach from chapter 8 talked about the fact that, to, that God's people were to remember that their hardship had been designed to teach them humility before him. And now this morning, God's people are to remember their sin, even with a certain level of specificity, that they would understand that it's not their righteousness that got them to this place, but it's God's faithfulness. There's a dependency there. And so you get this exasperated, uh, incensed Moses, right, at the people's sin. He comes down from the mountain, and he's furious. Uh, And we're going to read that passage in just a second. And he kind of gives this summary statement of this whole season of their life. You have been rebelling against the Lord all throughout. It's It's the nature and character of what this season of you walking with God has been, is rebellion. And so he begins with the golden calf incident. And you'll see this in Exodus chapter 32. Let's turn there this morning. We're just going to read a few verses. But you know, the golden calf incident, uh, if, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, God's people have come out of Egypt. Moses parts the Red Sea. They come to Sinai to the foot of Mount Horeb. Moses goes up on the mountain. He receives the law from God, the Ten Commandments. And, and then in that very short time, what we just read in Deuteronomy says, very quickly, 40 days, and the people are kind of like, and I love, I think it's the, um, uh, the NIV version says, uh, this fellow Moses, we don't know what's become of him. You know, this is the, the person who's led them throughout, and now he's just this fellow, you know. And so the people rebel. Well, we're going to read just the first six verses of Exodus 32. But by the way, let me, let me encourage you. If you have some time later today, maybe between church and the Super Bowl, uh, since there's not much snow to shovel, uh, read Exodus 32, 33, and 34. These three chapters are foundational, sort of Hall of Fame chapters, understanding the nature and character of God as he relates to human beings. And, and they set up much of the Old Testament and certainly the New Testament as well. Exodus 32 to 34. I encourage you to do that. But let's just read the first six verses. It says this. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods who will go before us, because this Moses, the man you brought, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron replied to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their gold rings that were on the ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an Im- the image of a calf. And then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Now, what's going on here? We'll describe the scene. First, let me tell my sons that this is not biblical justification for you to get earrings, even though I know you wanted them, or at least one of my boys does. Um, you know, different culture, different time. However, uh, what's happening in this scene? God is up on the mountain to receive the law. The people very quickly deviate from following him. They break the two commandments, worshiping another God and carving a, you know, an image uh, of a God. 
And, and I think if, if we read the text carefully, Aaron in particular is much more of a weak-willed, terrible leader than he is a full-on rebel himself, right? He's easily swayed by the people. He tries to sort of placate them and keep things under control. And so he takes their, their gold and he makes this image. And then the text says that they said, the people say, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And, and Aaron kind of responds or reacts to that. And it says he quickly builds an altar in front of the calf. It says, hey, by the way, there's going to be a festival to the Lord tomorrow, almost as he's sort of trying to, to sort of recover things a little bit. Uh, you know, things are kind of getting out of control. At least that's, that's a little bit in the text of, of kind of uh, how it seems to be. We certainly weren't there. But nonetheless, the people are just in wanton rebellion against God. They've so quickly forgotten the Ten Commandments. All this that they eagerly said, yes, we will do everything you command. Within, inside of 40 days, they're in full rebellion. And so the, the text says they got up to party. Some of your versions will say revelry and, and other things. And uh, it, it's likely that what's at stake here is basically a wild, drunken orgy of some sort. We don't know to, to what level of vulgarity. And one of the reasons we know that, if you, if you continue on in Exodus 32, as Moses comes down the mountain, his young assistant Joshua is with him. And Joshua says, hey, I, I think I hear the sound of war in the camp. Maybe that's the issue, right? We've got to get down there. Moses says, that's not war. It's the sound of singing. And it's not good singing. The people are out of control. And Moses comes down the mountain and he's incensed. That's the scene that exists there. Now, if you read the rest of the chapter, Moses initiates a judgment and the Levites go throughout the camp and 3,000 people are executed in this rebellion as Moses restores some sense of order. This is sort of the big event. But Moses goes on. He actually talks about five different instances of the people's Rebellion. And the next four that we read in verses 22 to 24 are recounted not chronologically, but in order of their severity in their rebellion against God. So at Taborah, the complaint against the Lord and the Lord's judgment, you can read this in Numbers chapter 11 if you're a note taker, the, the judgment of the Lord sort of breaks out in the fringes of the camp in, in a fire and a bunch of people uh, are killed. At Masa, the people complain over the lack of water and insinuate that God is in even with them. And so there's judgment that follows, Exodus chapter 17. And then there's the complaint about the manna. Remember the manna that God provided, this miraculous bread that appears every morning. They, they begin to whine about the bread, and they, and they want meat, and they complain uh, about that as well. Now, now, at a certain degree, you might read that and say, well, if I was eating the same bread every day, I, I kind of can see their complaint. But, but where we see the nature of the absurdity of it is they begin to have this dialogue at how great they had it in Egypt when they were in slavery. And if you read the book of Exodus, we know that they were under oppression and slavery. Incidentally, that scene, uh, the people complaining about the bread and the quail and, and sort of lamenting how good they had in Egypt, it might be the, uh, one of the few places that I think VeggieTales captures that really well. Uh, in Josh and the Big Wall. So you can check that out on your own. On your own. Uh, for those of you that kind of grew up with VeggieTales in the 90s and, and 2000s. So that's what happens at Kibroth Hatava. That's in Numbers chapter 11. And then the one that is the subject of Deuteronomy that we began with a few months ago. They come to the promised land at Kadesh Barnea. And God, and this is important for us to understand. God, I think excitedly, brings them to the edge of the promised land. 
and, and says, here is the inheritance I've been talking about. Here is this land that I've preserved for you, that I've been nurturing for you. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land with uh, olive groves and vineyards that are, that are bursting forth with fruitfulness and, and grain fields. It is ready. And I have, I have prepared this precious gift for you, O Israel. And here it is. And the people take one look at it and they acknowledge its greatness. And then they go, no way we're going in there. The people are too big. The cities are scary. No way. And they flat out reject the great gift of God's grace, showing zero trust in him despite everything he's already brought them through. It's full-on rebellion. In addition to angering the Lord, it, uh, breaks, it breaks his heart. And we see both of those things in Moses' response as well. There's a brokenheartedness and there's an anger at a missed opportunity for the people to receive the grace of God. You see, the people need this sort of adjustment of God's grace by remembering the sins of their parents. They need to be shaken here uh, to the degree that, to which that their will will change in obedience to him. Now, the illustration of being stiff-necked that Moses use, uses here certainly is not a chiropractic illustration. In fact, in the original idea, it would have been agricultural, right? It was the idea of God's people being so prideful and so stubborn, so self-sufficient and self-righteous that they would not submit themselves to the yoke of God's leadership and lordship over them, that they had to be in control. That's really the, 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 uh, the idea of the word stiff-necked here. And so God's people, yes, they need... Uh, the adjustment here. Um, but what's really at stake is their pride. It's their pride. And so I wonder this morning, as you, as you hear that uh, Exodus 32 passage, you think about the people in the golden calf or even complaining about uh, God's provision and being only bread, and it's probably hard for us to find an exact corollary. And Zach did a great job a few months ago talking about idols today in our context and culture. But Paul does the same thing that Moses does here in terms that we can very much understand. Paul calls the people in Rome, the Christians in Rome, and the Christians in Corinth to remember their sin, and he gets pretty darn specific. Listen to what he says in Romans 1. He says, they are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil. Listen to this one, disobedient to parents. They're senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Things like gossip and disobedience to parents is, is put right in line with murder. Paul wants us to remember our sin. Remember, and to say it a different way, remember what it is that Jesus saved you from. Remember what your life was like before Christ came into your heart and into your life. What was your family like before Christ came in? What were the things that you struggled with? Paul goes, he does the same thing to the Corinthians. He says this. He says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, slander and uh, minor sins, if you will, with all manner of sexual sin. Essentially, what Paul does in Romans and Corinthians is he puts us all in the same plane. 
And he's writing here to the churches, just as Moses is writing to the people of God in Deuteronomy. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord to anger. Now, why does he do this? Matthew Henry, the the great Puritan theologian, captures it this way, and I love the way he says this. He says, It is good for us often to remember against ourselves, with sorrow and shame, our former sins, to review the records conscience keeps of them, that we may see how much we are indebted to free grace. That we may remember how much we are indebted to free grace and that we may humbly own that we never merited at God's hand anything but wrath and the curse. Moses and Paul and Matthew Henry want us to understand that, that spending time reflecting on what God has saved us from is not some sort of like, God doesn't uh, want us to wallow in the sense of unworthiness, but to reflect in a way that causes us to respond with worship and gratitude for how great Uh, forgiveness we have received and how great the inheritance of eternal life that is to come that we have received. How good and merciful and gracious God has been. Or as one little anonymous quote says, always remember to forget the troubles that pass your way, but never forget to remember the blessings that come each day. So why does Paul write these long lists of sins? Is it, is it to create just some sense of that we start, start to feel terrible about ourselves? Of course not. It's to point us to Jesus. In fact, I saved out the best uh, verse in that passage where Paul is going. Uh, after listing out those sins in Corinthians, he says this, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. That is made holy. You were justified. That is made right with God. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is what God has done, is that he presents us pure, justified, forgiven through Jesus Christ. According to the Spirit of our God, Paul says. In fact, that brings us to our final point, and we see it so vividly in the text. I'm excited to share it with you. It's the working of a mediator. It's not just the warning against our self righteousness, and we need that. It's not just the witness of remembering our sin and being appreciative of all that we've been forgiven from if you're a believer in Jesus today, but it's to reflect and to worship the working of a mediator. So listen to what, back to Deuteronomy 9, Moses says. For the sake of time, we'll just read a couple of verses here. Uh, Verse 18, he says this, I fell down like the first time in the presence of the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I did not eat food or drink water because of all the sin that you committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and angering him. I was afraid of the fierce anger the Lord had directed against you because he was about to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me on that occasion. Verse 25, I fell down in the presence of the Lord 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had threatened to destroy you. I prayed to the Lord, Lord God, do not annihilate your people, your inheritance, whom you redeemed through your greatness. And he continues in this profound prayer. You see, Moses serves as a mediator between God and the people. Moses stands in the gap. He stands in the breach in a way that I don't think the people had any clue or idea And this is what profoundly stood out to me. Remember, Deuteronomy is a retelling of the law. And this is a sermon that Moses is giving to his people. Now, the people know, obviously, that Moses is their leader, right? He led them out of Egypt. He went up the mountain and received the law. He makes judgments of disputes that they have. The Bible tells us that that was one of his roles. 
But I don't think that they had any concept until this sermon of how much he had interceded for them. He had personally suffered for them, uh, not eating or drinking for another 40 days, taking on the guilt of their sin on himself and pleading on their behalf before God. Moses serves as a mediator at great cost to himself. And at the moment in Exodus 32 to 34, they have no idea what he's done for them on their behalf until he tells them here in Deuteronomy 9. And I think he, re- he waits and he unveils it here to have the impact that it needs to have if they're going to be obedient. And oh, the picture, the beautiful picture, because every Old Testament story and every Old Testament character is a picture and a foreshadowing. The biblical word is a type of a truth or something in the new. And this is a wonderful picture of Christ, our mediator, capital M. Jesus similarly stands in the gap for us, absorbs in himself on the cross the wrath of God on our behalf. And until you come to know Jesus as your Savior, you have no idea how much he has done on your behalf. And I would argue the process of walking with Christ is spending a lifetime learning to appreciate just that. So John says in his gospel, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Paul says to Timothy that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in talking about Moses, actually, that therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive, receive, note the language here, the promised eternal inheritance. The the inheritance of God's people, the promised land, is a picture of the eternal inheritance that we will receive. And I love, this is the ESV. I love how it says this, sort of in an offhanded way. Since a death has occurred. I mean, that statement is undergirded and loaded with with meaning. A death, yes, the death, the death of Christ on the cross. A death has occurred to redeem us from our transgression. This is the great grace of God in Christ. Not just a warning against our self-righteousness or that we would remember we've been saved from, but that we would, as we've done this morning in our singing and in our prayer and in seeking God's word this morning, that we would come to a place where we magnify and worship the great work of our mediator on our behalf. What an amazing thing that Jesus has done for us. You see, it's not just that we need the adjustment of our will to submit to God's grace in a chiropractic sense from considering our sin, it's more that actually the more relevant idea to, the, to the, the context that we need to reach a place where we willingly submit to the yoke of God's grace because he ultimately wants the best for us anyway. In fact, Jesus captured this so profoundly in his words in Matthew chapter 11 when he says this. He says, come to me, all you who labor, and are heavenly, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All you who are wearier and burdened, I think the NIV says it. And it's not just the idea of, of being uh, 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 labored and heavy laden or weary and burdened by all the trials of this life. Certainly that's uh, included in the idea, but it's weary and heavy laden in, in trying and striving to atone for your own sin, trying to do more good stuff than bad stuff or, or whatever your religious or particular system is. Jesus says, come to me and lay all that side. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me and you will find rest for your souls. You see, what we've looked at in Deuteronomy 9 is the gospel. Right in the first section, we cannot save ourselves. It is not our righteousness. 
in that middle section, recognizing that it is our sin that vastly separates us from God. Our sin is heinous, and we ought to consider its specificity. But, oh, God provides us with a redeemer. So, Christian, this morning, as easily as I can slip into starting to think I deserve it, starting to think I need to earn it and work hard, it is he who works in us to will and to do, Paul says. Non-believer, this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ, know that you will never save yourself, but that God has provided a way through Jesus that as you repent and receive him into your life, you get a fresh start. So I want to invite us this morning in the chat. You can just type in, hey, hey, I need you to pray for me this morning. This is what God's doing in my life. In this room, as we close, you can come down front. I'd love to pray with you or even just take some time to pray by yourself. Say, Lord, I'm, I'm going to start over just by submitting to you and allowing you to work in my life. Pray with me this morning. Father, we stand in awe of the depth and the riches and the profundity of your word to speak truth into our lives. Lord, it's hard to come to church and spend a half hour talking about the fact that we need to call to mind the ugliness of our sin, our greed, our lust, our gossip, or whatever it is. But Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the picture of Moses as a, as a, a, a tearful pleading mediator in which we see you, Jesus, providing our salvation. God, I pray for those who don't know you this morning that this would be the day that they bend their knee and submit their will, that they become uh, loose-necked, if you will, to submit to your plan and your love for them. God, as Christians, would you help us, help me this week to see obedience to you in a new light through the great grace and generosity of the cross. Lord, we thank you for this time together, and we just pray in Jesus' name, amen.